We can all agree with Ben Hood when he said this about electricity. Electricity hopefully should be like an Apple product. It just works and you don't have to think about it. The problem, though, is millions of Americans do have to worry about their electricity. From high energy bills to understanding the complexity of switching to solar and wind power, consumers around the world are struggling with the burden of not knowing the best or the cheapest alternatives to their current electricity providers. Ben is hoping to bring some answers to the table for those folks. Ben is the co-founder and CTO of WattBuy, a platform that helps people take charge of their electricity. And on this episode of IT Visionaries, he explains why deregulation is helping to solve some of the problems consumers have faced for quite some time. Plus, Ben talks about why the data WattBuy is gathering now will benefit consumers in the future. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries. Today, we have CTO and co-founder of WattBuy, Ben Hood. Ben, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Albert. All right. As we do with all of our guests, let's start right out the gate. What is WattBuy? Yeah, WattBuy is a, uh, is a platform that helps people take charge of their electricity. What we want to do is we want people to be able to um, access uh, cheaper and cleaner electricity by providing them with good information on what they're probably using, what kind of uh, electricity their local utilities are, are producing so that they can make good decisions about their electricity. So I'll put you to the test. Sure. I went to WattBuy. I did type in my zip code and my property details. And you are pretty good at predicting my average monthly cost, including my range based on month. Awesome. So tell me, what, what is the user supposed to do this information? Because so now I've typed in my information. Like, let's take it so like a user has never used this before. Absolutely. I've typed in my information. I kind of see this range. This yellow band is my kilowatt hours. This green band is the money I spend a month. What do I do next? Yeah. So it kind of depends a little bit where you live in the, in the country. For about 46 million households in the US, they have something called deregulated electricity options. So that means that they can choose who produces their electricity. So they can choose their specific supplier and they can make other decisions about, um, about their electricity. For instance, they can sign up for a, a fixed rate contract for 36 months. So if you're not in one of those deregulated uh, electricity states, then you, you really only, you're getting some information that allows you to, uh, to make decisions you know, personally, but you can't make a whole lot of decisions about your specific electricity purchasing. If you're in those 46 million uh, households that can choose their deregulated electricity, then you can go to uh, different companies and you can say, I want a 100% solar electricity plan. I want a 100% you know, renewable plan. I want to be able to lock in the lowest rate for 36 months or 24 months. However, it's pretty difficult to understand like which one of those plans is going to save you the most money and make the biggest bang for your buck. And so what we do is we allow you to put in your, your uh, address and then we estimate what your electricity usage is going to be down to 15 minute increments throughout the year. Because you're really, you're using, you know, very little electricity on, you know, uh, February 2nd from 2 a.m. to 3 a.m. But you're using a huge amount of electricity July 27th 
you know, from five to six in the afternoon when you have the air conditioning uh, cranked full blast. And so we, we do this, uh, this estimation, this 15 minute increment ex- estimation, so that then we can go back and apply that to every plan that's available to you if you live in these 46 million households. And then we can say sort of with certainty, um, this is the plan that's going to save you the most money if you switch to it. So let's talk about this from the perspective of first the users, sure. and then to your perspective as the CTO trying to engineer solutions to make this available. So on a user side, if I'm one of those 46 million households, and real quick, is that number going to grow where more people can choose their electricity plan, or do you think that number is going to stay relatively flat? How do you see future policy taking place where households will have more or less options? Yeah, absolutely. So there was a huge push in the late 90s to, to deregulate electricity. Texas really like, uh, like ran with it, right? But then specifically, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of Northeastern uh, states as well, big populous states, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, um, Illinois. But then there hasn't been a whole lot of uh, traction uh, for, you know, 15 years or so. There was a, uh, an effort in Florida to get it on the ballot um, so that they could choose between deregulated electricity electricity options. And there was one in Nevada. So probably every election cycle, there's probably one state or two states that's sort of thinking about it. One of the reasons why we're doing what we're doing uh, in collecting a whole lot of information is because there's not a huge amount, there's not great information on whether people can consistently save money on deregulated electricity. So we want to be able to produce a lot of that information so that people can say, you know, with, a, with certainty, like, yes, if you have great information, then you can save a lot of money on electricity so that those state legislators that are still thinking about deregulation can move ahead with it. But right now, it's, it seems pretty stable. The 46 million seems pretty stable with the exception, like I said, of like Nevada last year was thinking about it. Florida uh, was thinking about it on, on this election cycle, didn't move forward with it. So there may be one or two states that, uh, that started up every three or four years, but it's, it's pretty stable. Gotcha. So Electricity, our electrical grid is very similar to, let's say, the internet network, Yes, which is interconnected power lines that cross through different power, power creators. Yeah. And then to me, the power consumer. And basically, if I can run a line, or which it's already run, but effectively, I could say I can pick my source is basically what you're saying and you're suggesting. When you do this and you talk about this information, is that, I guess, where would you say your goals were when you started this company? Was it first to influence national policy? Or was it first to say, hey, this is just going to help standard average Joe consumers? Like, where was your vision when you first said, hey, this is a problem worth solving? Yeah, the, probably the thing that excited us the most about this was that there's a little bit of like sort of information asymmetry and that, that this is a problem that can be solved if you have the right data. I'm going to date myself a little bit and say in the late 90s, there were a huge number of like long distance telephone uh, plans that were competing with each other. And they would all say like, you know, for, for calls shorter than 10 minutes, it would be free or for calls after 8 PM, it would be free or calls to your four favorite friends, you know, are free, something like that. And uh, it was really difficult to figure out like, okay, what am I going to pay? How am I going to save money? Right. If you sat down with your bill, with your, with your telephone bill, you could figure out exactly which one of those is going to be the best uh, plan, but it's difficult. That same kind of thing is happening right now with electricity in these deregulated states. There are bills that, you know, your first 800 kilowatts of electricity are a set price. And then after that, you have to pay like a per kilowatt charge, their time of use, there's, you know, like everything underneath 1200 kilowatts. So there's a lot of different, really sort of complicated things. We got really excited because we thought computers are pretty cheap, you know, let's apply computers to this problem. 
let's create the electricity curve, the usage curve, and then apply that to every one of these plants so that people can make the best decisions. And then if, if, we, if we all make the best decisions, then there's so much more to go around, right? Then, then everybody's efficient with the electricity grid so that the costs go down and we can all sort of enjoy like the better comfort that comes from like efficiently using the electricity grid. So that's what got us pretty excited about, you know, starting this in the first place. So I've read different studies that have suggested that it's actually not electricity production is not actually a problem. It's electricity distribution, similar to food, that there's enough food produced every year in the world. It just doesn't get to everybody. Electricity is in a similar boat where it doesn't get to everybody. Is that one of the things that you guys ultimately saw at Wattby? Like, hey, if we figure this out, we can help distribute electricity to everybody. I will say that it's not, it's not exactly that, okay. uh, you know, the, it's kind of like that. But one of the things that is like a, a huge driver is peak demand, right? That actually like sort of the baseline usage of electricity, like it, it's really kind of, it's, it's a solved problem, right? right? We do pretty great, especially like if you're in the Pacific Northwest and you have like a whole lot of hydro that's supplying your grid, like you're great. But what, what actually kind of screws us up a little bit is this peak demand that happens, you know, on the five hottest days of the year when everybody decides, you know, we're going to crank up our air conditioning as much as possible. So that's kind of uh, one of the things that was driving us a little bit is like getting the right information out to the right people that by, by setting your uh, connected thermostat onto a, a, you know, onto a demand response system or a time of use system or something like that, then we could actually start to like have all the benefits of, of all this electricity usage without uh, actually having the detriments, without ha- having to pay the cost, because we can just apply sort of like smart systems or smart data to the, to the problems. So let's go currently today, I guess, how, how does WAPI monetize this information? Because and we're, then we're going to talk about into the process of, of course, the technical feat to collect it. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like who needs it today? How do you guys get paid? Where do you envision your use cases for this product? Because it sounds it's obviously a big data project, or I would call, I would label it a big data project, right? You're collecting data from all these disparate sources. You're centralizing into a pool. You're making it available. I see through your website on API basis. Yep, it's available via consumer basis. How are you envisioning, or how are customers using this information today? One of the ways, uh, the easiest ways we monetize it is we want to get um, the right information to people when they have to make the decisions on electricity. In general, like the um, electricity hopefully should be like, a, like an Apple product. It just works mm-hmm. and you don't have to think about it, right? But there are certain times in people's uh, you know, lives when they have to worry about it, when they move to a new house, right? When they switch their service, uh, you know, when something happens, they have to set up their electricity. So we have been doing a whole lot of integration points with companies that help you set up everything whenever you, whenever you move like moving concierge companies. So like real estate moving concierge. Companies. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Like when you want to get a quote for all the things that you need, uh, moving, uh, utility setup, banking setup, all those things. Like I think moving.com is actually an actual one of those websites. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And so we, we work with those kind of moving concierge companies and uh, we expose our API to them so that they can say to their customers, you know, you've, you've already put in your from address, your to address. And so, so now we know where you're going to move to. We know the day that you're moving. And so let's, let's set this up so that you can automatically say, I just want to save the most money on my electricity, or I want to have the, the cheapest, you know, 100% renewable plan for my electricity. So, and it's kind of a one-stop, uh, one, one click, you know, do all of this for me. So we're, we're, we're pushing forward with that. And we're creating these new APIs that, uh, that allow our partner companies um, to push forward with that. 
even if like the electricity companies uh, don't have like open APIs that uh, that allow them to do this uh, programmatically. Let's address that question next. So as we're walking back, we now know what its purpose and intent is, who's currently using the product today. Yep. So let's go to how do you get this information? Because you already said it, utility companies aren't known as being like the let's say most progressive companies, <laughs> right? They just control the grid, but they're not considered progressive. Yes. I've seen some of the systems they use. I mean, those like green screens <laughs> and dials still. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, APIs, like uh, the systems that some of these infrastructure plants, let's, let's call it a plant, like these utility power plants are built on. I mean, they weren't, they're built on legacy hardware. Absolutely. Data is probably kept on tapes. <laughs> How did you go about solving that first point, which is how do you get access to this information? Absolutely. So, and, 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 you know, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not completely their fault, right? A lot of these electricity systems were literally set up in the, in the late 1890s, you know, in the 1900s, 1910s. Giving confidence to the people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and they've, they've had to, uh, had to keep things running uh, continually. This is a little bit scary, but in a lot of situations, there was not a, a need to sort of like fully instrument um, all along the, the transmission grid. And so they didn't, right? They, they would see how much uh, a company was producing, um, you know, a, a, like an electrical plant was producing. They would have a meter, you know, sort of a dumb meter sitting at the house saying like how much people are, are using. And then everything in between was like this black box, right? It kind of worked, but, you know, uh, you know, woe is them if anything didn't work, if it stopped working, then they would have to go back and try to figure out like what's going on uh, all across the board. Now, of course, like in the last 20 years, we've seen like a huge, enormous uptick of smart meter uh, technology so that they can have better understanding of, of what's going on in real time, you know, in, in second by second, um, whether the, there's spikes, whether some tree limb fell onto, uh, you know, a wire that only you know, supplies four different homes something like that. And so we've been uh, taking advantage of, of that kind of step forward that the electricity uh, companies have been you know, implementing, but they still, there's still a lot of uh, EDI, uh, which is like a 1970s kind of technology in terms of data, data exchange. We see a lot of COBOL, um, unfortunately. <laughs> Didn't the state of New Jersey go down recently because no one knew how to use COBOL? <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. And, and uh, <laughs> And this is this is from somebody you know my my former life as a uh, astronomer like I did a lot of Fortran so I know you know there are some old systems that are are worth you know keeping up but in general like a lot of our work has been to try to sort of modernize or at least you know create an abstraction layer where we're we're worried about the legacy systems being able to to get the information to be able to share this with other places and then normalize this data make sure that it's it's easily accessible to our customers. Uh, and to our third parties so that they can take advantage of it, even if they don't have somebody that worries about COBOL or somebody that worries about uh, like these legacy systems. So how did you begin to collect all of this? Because like you're kind of hitting on it. Every source of information is on a different system. They're different antiquity. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you begin collecting and pulling this information so it was usable? Because, you know, like I think about how people want information in real time, typically with their consumer-based applications. Yep. If you go in and I were to type in my zip code right now and it gave me the spinning wheel because you had to go ping and query 
a COBOL application to return the data source. I mean, it probably would bail on you. Like I wouldn't stick around to find out. So you must have, I'm assuming you guys engineered a solution where you brought all this data into a centralized pool first and then use the pool to power the the site. Absolutely. Yeah. We're, we're uh, running mostly Mongo and Elasticsearch on our backend. So we, we have um, systems that are periodically grabbing the information from these disparate systems, pulling it together. But I I think you hit on a, on a, a good point there, which is the scientist in me wants to collect all the data everywhere, right? Absolutely. The product manager in me wants to collect the data that allows people to make actionable, intelligent decisions. Yeah. That's how we've started to engineer this is starting from like, what, what information do we need to present to the customer? I think it is actually really cool, you know, if we see how many peaker plants are contributing to someone, but how does that help them make decisions on their electricity bill or on whether they're going to put a solar, uh, a solar array on top of their house? So we, we start from that perspective and then we say, okay, to be able to present this information to them on, on what they can make decisions on, how do we get that, all of that information and how do we pull it all together? I mean, from a technical perspective, we're pulling most of the data into Mongo um, and Elastic search as necessary, you know, if we need like really uh, fast uh, feedback on, on the search. And then we're, we're using XGBoost to create machine learning models so that we can say, you know, from all of this data, if we want to apply all of this data to your particular situation, then we want to create this, uh, this model for, for your usage. And so we do that with a, like an XGBoost. So that means you're probably already heading down the path of being able to predict the future a little bit for me, right? Exactly. So I'm assuming you're going to need weather pattern data, right? You need to know what my average temperature is per summer and winter and how it's changing over time. You probably need to know moving data, right? You need to know how many people are moving to my area because that's going to create extra strain or excess capacity on a system. I'm trying to think of other data points, but off the top of my head, weather and moving patterns seem to be something you certainly have to account for. Dark sky is wonderful. Uh, I don't know if you've used the dark sky. sky. Dark sky is an API uh, for weather data. Okay. It's uh, minute by minute weather data. Um, they, they have a beautiful API, great data. You know, it goes down to sort of like, kind of like the two square mile kind of uh, weather data. It was just purchased by Apple and they've sunset the API mm. at the end of next year. <laughs> <laughs> so so we, we, have to, we have to worry about that, but, but it's the end of next year. So uh, at the end of 2021. So we're, we're, for the next year or so, we'll probably stay on dark sky for, um, for this weather data. And it has been just a, you know, a godsend because they have such great granular um, uh, and temporally relevant you know, minute by minute data, which is really what you need. You need to be able to say like this house is in this particular area. It has this wind speed. It has this humidity, this temperature. Um, it's this many square feet. It was built in this year. And so all of that data together says like, okay, this is what the electricity usage that you're going to see. And then also the American Community Survey from uh, Census is also just beautiful data with uh, a ton of data on, on housing characteristics and you know, uh, uh, income level and number of people in your home. Um, all of this data that pushes in to be able to see like a really good understanding of the, the census block, which is down to about, I think, 2,000 people. And then the other thing that we've uh, really loved is uh, assessor's data from uh, communities, like f- from counties, so that we can see this house was built in this, at this time, it's this big, it has this many bedrooms. And that's, that's a huge driver of your electricity usage is how big is your house? Yep. How many people live in that house? And how old it is. Absolutely. How old it is. And, you know, we, we actually even see like some, some kind of, uh, you know, 
high points in the data where we actually see like really old houses, super old houses, uh, 120 years, like they have had um, uh, renovations, you know, um, so they may be more efficient. The 1913 house might be more efficient than the 1962 house because uh, you have definitely had a, a renovation on that 1913 house, but you haven't, you might not have had like a, a heavy, you know, renovation, like attic insulation kind of renovation on a house from 1962. So I got to ask, so I saw this article about WattBuy that you had recently partnered with some solar panel companies, and I'm assuming all this information is used so that these solar panel companies can then help forecast a consumer, hey, when will your payback period be, or how long, how many years before this makes valuable sense to you, or Absolutely. You know, if you wait past this point, like it becomes, I don't know, detrimental because your power costs are going to go through the roof. You'll have to make a huge purchase decision now, because I know- I'm just thinking of a door-to-door solar salesperson that came to me recently and was saying like how there's actual tax credits that you can take advantage of today, which may not be available post-election and like, you know, <laughs> other things happening to say like, hey, it's, you know, they were trying to model for me basically how much money I would save or not save or potentially save. I don't know. But um, talk a little bit about that. It sounds like this is quite advantageous to use for these different solar companies. Tell me how they're leveraging it. Absolutely. So what, one of the projects that we're doing with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory um, is actually we're working on the utility rate database. So that's a, a database that, that they have been maintaining that has all of the electricity. The, the idea is to have all of the electricity rates across the U.S. But because of limited resources in the, in the government, they only track about 100 utilities across the US. There are about 3,700 utilities. Hmm. So there's a, there's a much bigger sea of utilities that the utility rate database at InRail don't track. So we're, we're creating, uh, again, a machine learning model to uh, automatically crawl the utility websites and then be able to automatically identify and classify those rate pages, the, specifically those residential rate pages, so that we can say sort of with confidence, this is the rate that you're going to pay. You know, they will often have the next year or two years of rates sort of figured out because most of these regulated utilities are um, have to talk to the public utility commission in order to change their rates. So they may know the next two years. And then you want to be able to know your electricity usage, you know, your estimated electricity usage, and then your solar incidence on your house. Because, you, you know, uh, creating too big of a, or a solar system on top of your house the, the companies may often have uh, utilities have some uh, limits on how much electricity they will buy back from like a solar system that creates too much electricity. So you, you need to be able to sort of right size these solar panels to make them the biggest bang for your buck. Uh, and so all of this data that we're creating uh, on the, the rates that you're going to pay, you know, estimated rates uh, in the next uh, three to five years. Um, the estimated electricity usage and how much electricity you're going to generate. Like all of those are, are great inputs to be able to say, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a no brainer. You should use a, a solar or maybe you need to wait until the solar panels like drop in price by half, like they have been doing, you know, uh, uh, in the past. And so wait until then to be able to make a, a good uh, sort of payback period. Gotcha. So let, let's walk a little bit through your background as to like how you got to this point to begin with. Yeah. Cause I was looking through your LinkedIn. And it looks like you've worked on all types of projects from cybersecurity projects, web and mobile application products. You've been building government contract applications to. <laughs> yes. You've done, it's, you've done a huge variety. Has that been like your, I guess, just you 
constantly pursuing learning new things. Tell me a little about your product development background because you do have a wide array of products that you've worked on. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so actually, my, my, I was trained. Uh, my my PhD is in astrophysics. So uh, I <laughs> smart guy. I love I love it. Yeah, uh, and actually, it's it's pretty exciting right now. Uh, my um, actually the the uh, the Venus the announcement about Venus having some phosphine in the atmosphere and maybe possible life on Venus. Uh, these are exciting things, you know, that I, I used to kind of work on some stuff like that. I used to search for extrasolar planets, but so, uh, I went forward with my, with my PhD and at the end of my, uh, my PhD, I tried to decide like, do I really want to stay in astronomy where almost everything that I discover, uh, is literally has like no impacts on the earth. Uh, like, it's, you know, it, I wouldn't go that far. I mean. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty hard. Uh, and so, so I, I thought I can, I can make a bigger impact if I, if I go back to sort of one of my first loves, which was computers and dive into, uh, you know, sort of more of the computer engineering AOL was, is very close, you know, to, to where I live here in the DC area. Uh, and so went out there and they said, uh, we think you should be a product manager. And I said, that sounds great. Uh, what is, what does a product manager do? And they said, well, we want you to be the interface between like the business decisions and the engineers, right? We, we want you to, to be able to say like, we need to do this so that we can be successful, you know, as a business and you communicate to the engineers. And that, that just fit me like a glove. I really enjoyed being able to, to dive deep into the, uh, into the engineering when I needed to, but I loved having the eyes up kind of vision of what was necessary from a, a business perspective. So that worked out really, really well. And then, you know, I, I, I jumped around to a few different places, sort of because I, I think uh, the best product managers don't get too bogged down in a specific vertical. I think they're better as uh, generalist product managers because I think, you know, there's a whole lot of common characteristics uh, in terms of working with engineering teams. So I've, I've really enjoyed doing that and diving in a little bit to uh, infectious disease at Metabiota. Uh, into cybersecurity at Endgame, creating intelligence applications for Barico, and then keeping things really interesting. It has. <laughs> I did have a couple of uh, a couple of little jaunts a little bit as well. Uh, my wife is a foreign service officer, so we went to Istanbul for a couple of years, and then also to Warsaw, Poland for three years. And so you, you have to be a little flexible, you know, when you're in a in a relationship like this, yeah. where you're going to move to another country, you have to be a little bit flexible. Uh, I was lucky enough in Istanbul to to teach at the uh, Istanbul Technical University, um, teach a computer science class, uh, and then also to be an economics officer. And then while I was in Warsaw doing the startup, but you have to, you know, you have to be a little flexible with life if you're going to uh, be able to take advantage of those kind of opportunities. So you're one of the, I think, special people, uh, product people that actually can code because we meet product people that can't code. <laughs> it's it, it, no, it, it's a. Uh, it's difficult if you can't code at all. Then it, then it's hard for you for it to be a, a a limiter. And you're you're saying you're asking for like a minority report style like interface. And uh, you, you exactly, <laughs> you know, then then this kind of the sky's the limit. But it, I think it really helps to bring like an engineering background to the product management so that you understand like okay, I can I can ask for X, uh, but X is going to take twelve months. Uh, and you know if if I can survive with Y and it's going to take two and a half weeks, um, then maybe I do that uh, and get it out into the market and, and see what the kind of the response is before I make that uh, investment in, into X. Perfect. You know, your analogy is very much similar. It's very similar to um, 
this person I met who's trying to describe to me the relationship between the structural engineer and an architect. The architect's always going to design something amazingly beautiful. And he, the person told me that the structural engineer always gives you a cube. <laughs> <laughs> I so, think that, that is perfect. That is exactly, that is spot on. That is spot on. Well, if we want to save money and build this fast, we'll make this. That's a cube. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a solved problem then. There you go. So let's walk to, well, let's walk into now we kind of, Understand a little bit what by a little understand a little bit what you're using system wise, what how you're using this data, how you plan to use data to help create better outcomes for the future. Let's talk about the, like the beginning of what by. So, you know, you'd worked, you did now accumulated quite a bit of experience developing applications and leading product teams. What made you see an opportunity in the electrical like electric utility data space? Like, what was that? That what was that event like when you were like, okay, this is where I want to build a product, and then. Of course, want to hear about how you met your co-founder and said, hey, this is something to do. Because I think on the surface, it's kind of difficult to, it's it, not that it's difficult, but it, like, I don't necessarily know that a lot of people would have seen this opportunity. You know what I mean? So yeah. I'm curious to hear a little bit what you experienced and why you said, hey, this is something I want to explore. So, um, and actually it's, it's a little tied in with, uh, with my, uh, my co-founder, you know, meeting my co-founder. Actually, we, he was a student at Georgetown. And I was I was living in the DC area, and we actually were working on a, a on an earlier electricity startup that actually was focused on electricity in emerging markets. So Haiti, Turkey, you know, uh, emerging market kind of electricity options. It uh, crashed and burned, um, you know, spectacularly. But we we met each other then and kind of stayed in touch. He was living in the in DC, and I was just across the river in Virginia. Uh, and we, as we were kind of uh, set up like the, the Google alerts on, on news uh, items and uh, stuff like that, uh, we were seeing more electricity uh, information about um, the choice that was in DC, you know, because DC is a deregulated electricity state and how so many people were basically being scammed, you know, so a, a huge like sort of scamming as people were walking around, you know, door to door salesmen trying to bring, bring people uh, onto plans that were like teaser rates, you know, good for one month, and then they would uh, jack up the rate really high. And we thought, let's explore this a little bit more. Started diving into the data, started finding out that it's, it's actually a pretty significant uh, group of, uh, of people that have uh, deregulation available to them, these 46 million households, and thinking, let's try to come up with a software solution that really makes an impact. The software piece of it was because, you know, my background has typically been in, in developing software. I really believe in the, the impact that comes from like software uh, and, and getting it out the door, you know, reproducing it easily instead of having to, to rebuild like brand new hardware systems to be able to take advantage of it. So we, we were trying to come up with like, how can we easily create a, like a software system that can, can give good information to people to be able to run with this and, and make good decisions about their electricity because it has been this black box for so long. And then actually fast forward. So we knew each other kind of uh, early on and had talked about this. And then I was living in Warsaw and he, my co-founder was, uh, was working at Google and he called me uh, about a year into Google and he said, please don't make me do this anymore. <laughs> and I, I'm thinking like, you know, uh, you know, me that have kids and a mortgage, I'm thinking like Google seems pretty great yeah. guy, but, <laughs> but uh, but he he didn't want he wanted to make a bigger impact and he wasn't making a huge impact uh, at Google. Uh, he felt like he was a little bit more of a cog, you know, in, in a, uh, thousands of people. 
which I suppose he was, you know, Google's a pretty big company right now. So Naman, he said, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's put this together. You know, let's try to uh, apply to some, to accelerator programs. Uh, let's get together. Uh, you know, you have some contacts of engineers that are uh, in India and in Poland. We have some designers that I worked with while we were in Poland. Uh, and he said, let's, let's make a go of this. And we can do it just until you come back from Poland. The State Department, God bless them, you know, they, they know that it's often not easy for people to, um, to get a job on the local economy whenever the, the spouse is a foreign service officer. So they, they set it up so that you can really live you know, uh, on a single salary. So I had a sort of a time frame where we could, I could try to work on this startup while I was living in Poland, while my wife was a foreign service officer. And so we could move forward with that. And then if it, if it didn't go anywhere, no harm, no foul. Uh, I come back to America and I find another job. Uh, and, and, but instead, you know, he, he got into the accelerator program uh, at uh, Techstars. We did that, raised around and really got after it really hard while I was living in Poland. Uh, and so that when, when I came back, we were able to just keep running with it and now have, you know, probably about a team of about a dozen or so uh, that's working on this. So whenever you imagine a product or a business, you tend to get going. You won't find your first roadblock, of course, until you start, right? What was your first technical roadblock where you were like, man, this is a little bit harder than I anticipated? Um, <laughs> like, like how, how much time do you have? Um, it seems like really the, um, the, the technical roadblocks that we, we still have not you know, solved all of them. Yeah. A lot of them are about, you know, existing legacy systems that, that just either there, there is no data there um, or, or we can't do something until somebody sort of like completely upgrades their systems. You know, I, I, a, a huge roadblock in my mind is the fact that there's only 46 million of these uh, homes that, uh, that have this deregulated option. And, you know, some states are moving forward with it, but there are, there are huge swaths of, of the America that still don't have a market rate for electricity because they are a completely uh, vertical, vertically integrated monopoly. So things like Texas have a market and they have deregulation, you know, market for electricity. Things like California have a market for electricity. So you can be a, an electricity producer um, and not be like one of these uh, uh, utility monopoly utilities, but they don't have deregulation. A place like Georgia has neither. They have no market rate and they have no deregulation. So, you know, the, the efficient guy in me like gets annoyed by that. And then I, I have to sort of like turn our attention to the things that we can, we can solve until we get to be, you know, such a size that we can go to Georgia state legislature and say like, Hey, think about this, you know, th there's going to be just some patience that I have to learn on my part uh, before we get to sort of this great, perfect scenario in my mind. How about what's happening with with pandemic, right? So post pandemic, or we're still yeah. in pandemic, I guess we're not actually at post, but people are moving more. We talk about this with every one of our guests so far and the pandemics, the moving habits, especially of people have played impacts on their business. So are you seeing in data that people are moving more towards these areas that you service today? Like where these deregulated electricity markets are people moving away? Like where do you see? And I mean, I, I don't know if it's actually like a part of the decision process. I don't think it is where people are like, I really only want to move to a state where I can have choose my electricity provider. I don't think, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not making that choice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. However, that we, we are seeing a lot more people that are moving to, you know, sort of a, away from the coasts, 
uh, we're seeing a lot of people moving into Texas. I was thinking that Texas, um, you know, that like the p- pandemic was sort of shut down moving, but actually this, this summer has been, you know, gangbusters. It's, right. been, it's been huge with like the, the moves into, uh, into Texas. We've also found that we've seen the electricity usage change uh, with the pandemic as well. We, we, did, a, we did a little uh, uh, analysis on electricity usage and we found uh, that what happens is actually that after the lockdowns in March, people really, they started using a whole lot more electricity at home, obviously, like overall, like about 6% uh, more electricity, but they also start, started uh, sleeping in a lot later. Right. So like we, we could see previous to March, we could see like this usage curve get up like around 6 a.m. Uh, and then we saw it like moving back uh, like end of March, uh, April, May. We could see it moving back to more like 8 a.m. And we could see people staying up a whole lot later. Uh, we could see people eating in. We could see like this, this spike, uh, you know, at the 8 p.m., kind of 7, 8, 9 p.m. time frame so that people are because people know people are, are going out. So we're we're seeing like the the electrical grid is this is this wonderful sort of representation this model of our activities uh, of our actions and so it's been really interesting to see how the pandemic uh, really affects um, you know how people are using this overall the electricity usage has been way way down but it's it's been way way down mostly because of the commercial and the industrial usage has been way down right but the residential uh, has gone up we're also pretty excited to see that you know. Right now, there's a huge amount of uh, electricity usage that's in that's congregated in cities. We think that it, it's also going to uh, be a lot more distributed because a lot more people are saying, like, I don't need to stay in the city if I'm a tech worker, um, so I'm going to move somewhere. Um, uh, one of my friends just went to North Carolina, decided he was going to buy a house there, and so there's going to be this dearth of usage. There's all this invested infrastructure in the cities. But there's probably not going to be the usage that's necessary because they're going to empty out just a little bit, at least, as people can uh, can work remotely. All right. So based on your seat today, with the information that you have, I and mean, you've seen more than most, right? Tell me something that you think is going to happen over the next five years. So it seems to me like the that distributed generation is going to continue going up, and we're going to start to see in some grids, in some local grids, that the utility is not going to be able to push down on the, on the distributed generation that the, uh, mainly the solar panels, but also maybe like the, you know, the, the storage um, kind of uh, component to it. They're not going to be able to hold that back too much longer. And so they're going to have to make some fundamental changes to the way the grid works in order to, to, to maintain the consistency of the grid without like the, the brownouts, the blackouts, or the, the difficult scenarios. You know, right, right now what happens is uh, Cali, so, you know, decides, okay, we, we have, we, we're going to need this much electricity usage tomorrow, uh, and we're going to need it in this curve, right? So, so we're going to put it out on a market to say, um, this much you, you, you're going to generate here, this much you're going to generate here, you know, you, you peak or plant might have to jump in. They're going to have to start thinking a whole lot more about uh, the solar panels that are on top of people's houses, how people can change their usage and their generation. And making sure that that's a, a like a really significant component, so that they can maintain the consistency of this just works kind of grid, and yet still allow people to have this distributed generation that they that they're so excited about. So that's one thing that I would love for you to kind of explain a little bit because when I started reading about this in preparation of this interview, it sounds 
I'm imagining almost like an auction. Like there's an active bid pricing on electricity. Yes. At all times. Is that accurate? Like people are like companies are actively bidding. Like I need X number of kilowatt hours and someone else say I need Y number of kilowatt hours and they're put bids on it so that they can generate electricity flows into their customer base. The bidding is to, uh, is to sell exactly is to sell the electricity in. And then, so the ESOs, uh, or the, uh, the regional transmission operators, like there's a few of these around the country, ERCOT in Texas and Cal ESO in, in California. So they operate the market and then, you know, you, you have a natural gas power plant or you have a bunch of solar panels or, or, uh, wind, uh, turbines. And so then you're bidding to, or you're offering your electricity generation um, at a certain price. And then uh, the market is saying, yes, you know, we, we need that. That's, uh, that's what we're going to take. We're going to take that and that and that. And then to, to be able to minimize the cost to the consumer. Uh, and then in like California, it's PG&E or it's San Diego Gas and Electric, who is the, the main sort of um, uh, distributor to that. So yeah, there's like this market that's going on all the time. There was some interesting research that came out. Um, the market happens in California. The market happens in, in the Northeast uh, for the uh, Northeast Pool or PJM um, and in Texas and ERCOT. But the Southeast does not have a market. So it's mostly just monopoly uh, utilities. And they own their generation and they own the, the meters and poles, the wires and poles that go directly to the house. There was, there was a, some research uh, on that, uh, the Southeast. Uh, and it was billions of dollars that could be saved and billions of so many metric tons of carbon that could be saved if the Southeast went to an active market. Because one of the things that uh, if you don't have an active market, then a whole lot of coal, like pretty inefficient coal plants stay in service because there's not like a, a market pressure to retire them. There's like a fixed price that, will, that they know that what their revenue is going to be if they produce X number of whatever kilowatt hours of electricity. So they know the inputs of coal, they can just keep making it because the market constantly buys it. There's not an actual, you know, private sector system that lowers the price and says, Hey, like, and it makes coal fires inefficient. Exactly. That's exactly right. It seems like it's uh, you know, emerging consensus that uh, if there were more markets, there's no market in the, in the West, except for in California. But so if there's, if there's a lack of markets, then we're going to have less efficient but that with the markets, we can actually have a more efficient system. And so that's what uh, hopefully we'll be going towards more. And then the market will demand you know, less, less costly, which less costly usually uh, after the initial infrastructure costs, less costly usually is the, is the renewable, the wind and the solar. And then uh, you know, if there happens to be a, a well-functioning sort of carbon, like carbon tax uh, or like, uh, sort of carbon input, then it's going to make wind and solar and hydro just even better, right? And just making even more money. And there's where you are, what by? That's right. Being able to reveal all this information and uh, making it easier for, let's say, policy to help enable better, better power production and consumption, right? Cheaper, better, cleaner, more efficient power production and consumption. That's exactly right. Well, there you go. All right, Ben, it's time. It's time to go to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Ben, this is where we ask you some rapid fire questions just to better know you personally. You ready? Sure. Nothing to catch you. Lightning round. Ready? Here we go. Does your house have solar panels? Not yet. At what price per kilowatt hour does it make sense to have solar panels? <laughs> uh, it, uh, 
depends, but uh, you know, we're going to buy them. We're going to be able to pay the off the solar panels. Uh, our electricity is about 12.5 cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, and we're going to be able to pay them off in about 20 years. And so we're looking into getting them on the new house that we're building now. There you go. Do you have a favorite band or artist that you listen to for music? Owl city. Owl city. Yeah. What song would they have a popular song? Which one is it? I feel like I've heard that name. What's one that would help me? I think fireflies. There you go. Fireflies. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> is there a hobby or habit you have picked up during shelter in place? Or I guess it's not really shelter in place anymore, but just during work from home. Tennis. Tennis. Yes, actually. Yeah. I'm, I'm taking my kids to tennis like nearly every day now because we can stay away from other people and uh, we can, uh, we can walk through the tennis courts. All right. Are you any good? I'm great. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. All right. What's your favorite thing to do on a weekend in DC? Uh, I think probably hang out with my kids. What's the best advice you have for a first time CTO? Um, just dive in. Just dive in. Yeah, dive in. Don't don't hold back and don't wait for perfect. Um, just try try things. You know, immediately. There you go. I used, I always joke with people. You can't learn. You have to learn. You can only learn by doing. Right. People that watch YouTube videos, well, I saw YouTube absolutely, videos. Absolutely. Well, I don't care. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Like whether it's coding. It's playing guitar or swimming. Unless you're doing, you cannot learn. That's right. And don't, don't be afraid. You will do it badly, right? That's All right. of those <laughs> swimming, guitar, you know, making a business, you'll do it badly to begin with. And then you'll get better over time. There you go. And if you weren't in technology, what would you be doing? Uh, science teacher, teaching physics to high school students. There you go. By the way, I want you to know that my mother-in-law is Scottish and I saw that you went to St. Andrews. So she would, yeah. if I introduce you to her, she will introduce you to my wife and try to kick me out of the loop because anything that she, she loves St. Andrews. She talks about it all the time. We, my, my wife and I both went to St. Andrews and uh, she jokes because uh, Prince William was there while, while we were there. Yeah. And my, my wife says that she, she went to St. Andrews to, to meet him and to marry him. Uh, and instead she got me. Hey, listen, you're a good second option, okay? That's <laughs> true. <laughs> well, Ben, I appreciate you joining us today on IT Visionaries. We look forward to seeing what Wattby does in the future. And all the best to you and your company. Thank you so much, Albert. All right. Thanks for joining us. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.